0: Tonight we're going to look at Galatians 3. Again, in verse 15 is where we, be, we begin. I have a couple of friends who are, I would consider them theologians. They're very theologically inclined. They know lots of stuff. And they know it at levels that you and I are, listen, there are levels of theology that we know not of. And one guy in particular, um, his name is Justin, and he knows Greek fluently, Hebrew fluently, Aramaic fluently, even Ugaritic. And he tells me languages he has studied that studied I never knew existed. And what's great about this guy is that he takes complex subjects and simplifies them. And when he explains to me, you go, "Oh, I get it now." And that's a real hard thing to do. And what's great about Justin is that. He's from the south, and it's sort of like if Elvis were a theologian, he would sound like this. I mean, it sounds like Elvis Presley. You know, the Greek word is legitimized. Want to say thank you very much? <laughs> and it's it's just a classic. But um, the theologian you'll see comes out in Paul the Apostle tonight, especially in these chapters. We've mentioned that Galatians is divided. It's a simple outline. It's divided into three basic sections. The first section, chapters 1 and 2, are autobiographical. They're personal. Paul tells his story. Chapters 3 and 4 are doctrinal. We're right smack dab in the middle of this doctrinal theological section. The last two chapters, 5 and 6, are practical. What it all means to us living now, today. That's how he dealt with it. Paul loves... The Old Testament, he was a rabbi. He's very conversant in it. He debated theological principles. He stuttered, he stuttered, no, I stuttered. He studied under Gamaliel, I stuttered under Gamaliel. He studied under a great rabbi where he took the hard principles of the Scripture, learned them well enough not only to understand them but to convey them to others. And tonight we see more of that. In fact, we see an ability that Paul has to base an entire thought process on how a verb or a noun is conjugated. And in this case, the function and form of the singular noun in the Hebrew language. This is Paul. He's an amazing kind of a guy. But he's dealing with a very important issue And I'm glad that he dealt with it. Otherwise, there would be more problems in the church today than there are. And believe me, there are plenty. But Paul is dealing with an important issue of salvation. Now, you know, the very first big issue in the Christian church, the biggest theological debate wasn't over cults, wasn't over gay marriages, It was over you and me, Gentiles. Can non-Jewish people have a right relationship with God? And if they can, how? Do they need to come through the law? Or can they just come as they are and trust in Jesus Christ? Now, for us, it's no big deal. We believe in Christ and we move on. But back then, that was the huge issue at the time. And Paul has already stated his position. Here it is. You and I are saved as Abraham was saved in exactly the same way. Abraham believed God with nothing in his life, no visual promise of God, no offspring saying, I still believe. And God counted it as righteousness because of that faith. That's how you and I come by faith, by believing. But that is a message that can easily be misunderstood, and it was. There was a group of people in the church that misunderstood Paul's message of faith. They were the Jewish believers. And there was a group of them we call Judaizers, now they didn't call themselves that, that's a theological term. That is Christians who believed you had to be a Jew first to be a Christian. They misunderstood what Paul was saying. They were saying, well, Paul, you keep talking about faith and faith and believing in Jesus and and going back to Abraham. It's as if you have taken Moses and the covenant that God gave with Israel, the law, and thrown it out. And that's not what he's saying. And it's as if he anticipates the argument and writes about it in the next few verses. Have you ever spoken to someone only to have them completely misunderstand everything you were trying to get across. You're speaking and they're looking at you like, and, and you hope that it's just, you know, a twitch they have and at the end they say, I have no idea what you just said. Or they take it to mean something completely different. And it could be very frustrating. Um, as an illustration, this is a bulletin that went out in a public school system by the superintendent of the schools. It was told to the assistant superintendent. The message went like this. Next Thursday morning at 1030, Haley's Comet will appear over this area. This is an event which occurs only once every 75 years. Call the school principals, have them assemble their teachers and classes on their athletic fields, and explain this phenomenon to them. If it rains, then cancel the day's observation and have the classes meet in the auditorium to see a film about the comet. End of message. Well, the assistant superintendent got the message out to the principals, but it was changed a little bit. It said, by the order of the superintendent of schools, next Thursday at 10.30, Halley's Comet will appear over your athletic field. If it rains, then cancel the day's classes and report to the auditorium with your teachers and students, where you will be shown films, plural, a phenomenal event which occurs only once every 75 years. And then the principals took that message and gave it to the teachers, saying, by the order of the phenomenal superintendent of schools, at 10.30 next Thursday, Halley's Comet will appear in the auditorium. In case of rain, over the athletic field, the superintendent will give another order, something which occurs once every 75 years. Then the teacher got the message out to the students, and that message went like this. Next Thursday at 1030, the superintendent of schools will appear in our school auditorium with Halley's Comet, something which occurs only once every 75 years. If it rains, the superintendent will cancel the comet and will order us out to our phenomenal athletic field. And then finally the students gave all of that message back home to their parents, which said. When it rains next Thursday at 10:30 over the f- school athletic field, the phenomenal 75-year-old superintendent of schools will cancel all of the classes and appear before the school in the auditorium accompanied by Bill Haley and the Comets. <laughs> <laughs> that message changed quite a bit, didn't it? Complete misunderstanding. Well, Paul the apostle found himself in a very similar situation of being misunderstood by a group of people that were causing problems in the church, in the province of Galatia. Paul, you have talked about Christ, you have gone back to Abraham, you have quoted the Old Testament, but by fusing Christ with Abraham, it's as if you've taken the law, the covenant that we Jews love, out of the picture. Now Paul was accused of that. You may remember when he went back to Jerusalem and I think Acts chapter 21. Some Jewish worshipers were there in the temple courts and they saw this rabbi turned Christian and they accused him. They they rushed toward him and they yelled out, "Men of Israel, help. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. The Jewish legalists would have you believe in Christ. That's a good start. But once you've done that, now you have to keep the law of Moses, the covenant God gave to the children of Israel. Paul talked about the covenant God made with Abraham. Hey, what about the covenant, the deal, the contract God made with Moses and all of us Jews. So that's what Paul deals with in the next paragraph. He takes all three, Abraham, Moses, and Jesus, and shows they're all getting along just fine. There's no conflict between them at all. In fact, just as Abraham looked forward to Jesus, Moses also, in the law, pointed forward to Christ. There's no tension. Quick background. Abraham, the father of the Jewish faith, was a Gentile, not a Jew, when God called him. Abraham, the father of the Jewish faith, was a Gentile, not a Jew, when he was justified by faith. You remember he was living in Ur of the Chaldees. God said, Abe, now I'm paraphrasing a little bit, I want you to leave home, leave your family, and I'm going to take you to a land that you don't know of, you don't know where you're going, but trust me on this. It's going to be really great. In fact, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make descendants come from you as innumerable as the stars you're looking up at that you cannot count. I'm going to blow your mind with what I will do with your life. And so he left believing God, believing a promise a few centuries later, Moses came along because the children of Israel, those descendants of Abraham, were living in Egypt. They were in bondage. They were slaves. They cried out to God. God raised up Moses as the deliverer who brought them to a mountain in the middle of nowhere called Sinai, where God appeared, gave a set of regulations called the Torah, the law, summed up in the Ten Commandments as a covenant to the children of Israel. Two different men, two different contracts or covenants. Now, you have to understand this. And I want you to walk away, if you haven't studied this before, to understand this difference. God was dealing two completely different ways with two individuals. First of all, he was dealing with Abraham. And with Abraham, God made a covenant based on a promise With Moses, God made a covenant based on the law. With Abraham, the emphasis was on God. With Moses, the emphasis was on the people. When God first spoke to Abraham, he said, Abraham, Genesis 12, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. Where's the emphasis in that promise? On God. He didn't say, hey, listen, buckaroo, there's a few things you better do for me. He just said, Abraham, stop right there. Let me tell you what I'm going to do for you. I, 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 I. That's what I'm going to do. It was a unilateral and unconditional promise. There's only one thing for Abe to do. Go, okay. I believe that. And when he did, when he believed God's promise, God said, good enough, I will impute to your account a right standing with me based on that faith. Oh, but that's where the difference lies, you see, because when we come to Moses some centuries later, it wasn't based on God's unilateral promise, it was based on a cooperation. And the emphasis was on man's ability to keep the covenant. Summed up in the Ten Commandments: Thou shalt, thou shalt not. And these are things now you must do, God said, which Israel repeatedly failed to do. In our paragraph coming up, Paul divides his thought into positive and negative, beginning in verse fifteen to verse eighteen. So that's 15, 16, That's four verses. It's the positive. Or, excuse me, it's the negative. He's saying the law cannot annul or take away the promise that God made to Abraham. And then he goes to the positive, beginning in verse 19 to the rest of the chapter. The law on the positive side serves a very important purpose, a very special purpose. So this is what the law can't do. This is what the law was not for. And then this is what the law was for. So let's look at verse 15 and let's just see how far we go. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men. Though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. What does he mean by that? Well, he's giving an illustration of a man's or a human contract, a contractual agreement. We all have them. We all have to deal with them. We all have to sign on the dotted line for something. You want a home? You have to sign an agreement that you will pay through the nose for the next X amount of years. You want a car? You have to sign and promise that you will pay. Now you can't, let's say you, you buy a car. It costs you 200 a month for X amount of years. If after five months you go, I don't want to pay $200 a month. Forget it. They don't need it. They don't deserve it. I've changed my mind. Rather, I'll write a nice little note to the car company or to the bank and say, I've decided to pay you $25 a month. Well, I'm sorry. You can't change that. You can't change your mind. That's a human contract or covenant. My father did something wonderful for my mom. He made a living trust rather than a will. Now, I don't know a lot about these things, but boy, he uh, really saved her a lot of pain when he passed away a few years ago. Saved a lot of lawyers' fees. And he had an A trust, he still does, and a B trust. The A trust is for mom, the B trust is for the three boys. They are irrevocable. You cannot change them. What goes into the B trust, mom can't change or take. What goes into the A trust, none of us can until she, as the principal holder, passes away. Then what's in the A trust goes to the B trust. It's irrevocable. It's unchangeable. Those are covenants, human agreements. There's an interesting debate going on a few miles north of us in a ski valley known as Taos Ski Basin. It's a great place. It's such a wonderful, area for skiing and would therefore be an awesome place for snowboarding. Oh, but don't count your chickens before they hatch, because you cannot snowboard in Taos Ski Valley. It's written into the covenants. It's one of, was somebody clapping? We need to apprehend these people. And let me tell you why. Families are complaining. They're saying, you know, we, mom and dad, we like to ski. We're not into this snowboarding stuff. The kids, they like the snowboarding. And we want to go on a family vacation. We want to go on a ski vacation. But the kids don't like to ski. They don't know how to ski. They're snowboarders. But we can't go to Taos. And so there's this big push. You may have seen bumper stickers, free Taos. <laughs> Amen. Amen. And that's because the guy who started the ski area, Ernie, Ernie Blake, I believe is his name, made sure that when he died, that was understood. There was this tacit and even uh, contract that it will remain pure for only skiers. And uh, because, you know, snowboarders are the riffraff of society, right? I'm a snowboarder. Just set the record straight here. And... uh, Anyway, there's a huge controversy going on. At what point can we change this? Where does the contract go back to? Now, here's the point Paul is making. If that works in the human arena, where you have human contracts that are irrevocable contracts, how much more is God immutable or unchangeable when he makes a promise? God doesn't make a promise and then a few hundred years later go, Well, I've changed my mind. I'm not going to keep that promise that I made to Abraham and his descendants forever. It's no longer by faith as it was for Abraham. That's Paul's point. Oh no, this is an irrevocable agreement made by promise from Almighty God. Verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed, now follow carefully, were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as one, and to your seed, who is Christ. Ah, here's where the scholar comes in. This is where Paul becomes Theodore Theologian for just a few moments. And he bases his whole doctrinal point on a grammatical point in the use of the word seed. It's right out of Genesis chapter 12, verse 7. Now let me explain it to you. Seed is a singular noun. That's his point. Not seeds, plural, but seeds, singular. It's a singular noun in form, but it often functions, as we know, as a composite noun. Right? If I say seed, I could mean one or I could mean many. Just like if I say offspring, I have offspring, one. I have progeny, but only one. But that same noun can function in a composite sense, meaning many. But Paul is making a a rabbinical point. He's he's the rabbi. He's going back to the strict and fullest original sense of the word, saying, you know, if God said to Abraham, through your seed, singular, he must not just be speaking of the descendants of Abraham, the Jewish nation, but of the greatest descendant, Jesus Christ. Singular. Singular. The greatest fulfillment. Now, that shouldn't throw us. We shouldn't walk away going, huh? Because Jesus is called the son of David. Well, David had lots of sons and daughters, lots of offspring. But the term son of David in the Bible refers, as we know, to the greatest, the ultimate son of David. Or how about the term that Luke employs, the son of man? I'm a son of man. You're a son or daughter of man. You're an offspring of humankind. But the term refers to the ultimate son of man. The greatest descendant of man, the God-man, the Theanthropos. And so here's a term Paul is making in this point that... God used the word in its strictest, fullest sense to refer to Jesus Christ, not to the nation of Israel. The world isn't blessed because there are many Jewish people in the world as much as the Jews brought in the Messiah. And that's where the blessing comes from. So he follows the thought, verse 17. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, that is later than the promise that God gave, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer a promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. I want to, if you'll allow me, unravel a problem that is in this text. The problem is with the 430 years. Let me... Explain that, get it out of the way, and then go for the heart of it here. You know, scholars like to write lengthy books and fill in the pages with stuff that you have to trudge through. And, And one of the issues is the 430 years, and it's a problem because the law actually came into existence oh, about 645 years after God made the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. So you might have a group of people saying, Paul's lying, or there's a discrepancy, or the Bible isn't the word of God. Let me tell you where he's reckoning this from. The promise was given 645 years before the law to Abraham. But it was repeated as the promise to Abraham, and it was given to Isaac. And then it was later on given to Jacob. It was repeated. The last mention of the promise, this blessing came to Jacob just before he and his sons went down into Egypt, which was 430 years before the children of Israel went to Mount Sinai. So the promise was given, repeated, reiterated to the children of Israel 430 years before the law was given to Jacob. That's in Genesis chapter 46. That's where he's reckoning it from. Here's the point. The point Paul is making is that, listen, God made a promise to Abe. God gave a law to Moses. The covenant of the law to Moses doesn't throw out or annul or push aside the promise that God made to Abraham. That through Abraham and his seed, all the families, the nations of the earth would be blessed. The point is God never forgets a promise. Even after 430 years, even after 645 years, God didn't go, you know, I promised something somewhere back there, but I don't remember. It's been so long. Now, I forget promises. I was having a discussion with my son last night over this text. I said, Nate, have there been any promises that you can think of that dad has made to you and not kept? And he went, oh. And he thought, and he goes, Dad, I can't think of one specifically, but there have been so many. <laughs> I go, you better think of one right now. <laughs> the law cannot annul or take away a covenant based upon a unilateral promise. Okay, you following me so far? Okay, let me take you a little bit further in this before we press on and, and close up shop. We have, and this is always fascinating, we have an interesting intersection in the Bible a couple of different times where the unconditional covenant, the unilateral promise given to Abraham, some call it the Palestinian covenant, the covenant of God saying, I'm going to give you this land to you and your descendants forever. There are times when that covenant intersects a conditional covenant, the law. Where God says, if you break these laws, I'm kicking you out of your land. Now here he says, I'm giving you this land, you and your descendants, forever and ever. It's from me to you. It's unconditional. This is what I'm going to do for you, period. All you have to do is say, okay. But then there's the law of Moses, where God says, if you don't do this, and if you do that, and you don't do that, I'm going to put curses all over you, and you'll be kicked out of your land. And we have both of these covenants sometimes running together into the same intersection. How does God keep them both? How does he pull that off? This is the interesting part. You could look at it in the Babylonian captivity. Children of Israel did what God told them not to do, followed idols, prayed to foreign gods, disobeyed God, etc., So, what did God do? God kicked them out of the land that he promised to Abraham and his offspring forever. Kicked them out. Put them in another land. The oppressors tortured them, beat them, oppressed them. What happened to the children of Israel? They didn't like it. They cried, God, I'm sorry. And when they cried enough, and they were turning their hearts in repentance back to God, God said, great. Now." I'm going to bring you, like I said in this covenant, back to this land and offer it as an everlasting covenant. So, though you may be out of the land temporarily, I'll bring you back permanently. And it happened again for 2,000 years. The diaspora, the Jews were kicked out of the land of Israel until May 14, 1948. And he's brought them back again. And so we see this ebb and flow of, yes, I made a promise to you and your descendants, but if you disobey, I'll kick you out. And God is always faithful to bring them back, conditioned upon their repentance, which they always do because they're fed up with the other stuff. It's interesting how God works both of them together at the same time. Okay, let's move on. Enough of that. Verse 19. Now, this is the positive side. This is what the law can't do, he has just said. This is what the law is there for. Because the Judaizers would would automatically say, well, well, Paul, what good is the law? If you can fuse Christ together with Abraham, if you can take Christ and fuse him with the promise, then why the law? And so he says, verse 19, what purpose then does the law serve? It was added. It was added. Notice that. Because of transgressions until the seed should come. To whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now You might want to skip over that second part, but, but I suggest you not do that. He's making an important point. It, was, it came through a mediator, that was Moses, but it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator, that is Moses. In other words, the law came third hand. God gave it to angels, the angels gave it to Moses, Moses gave it to the children of Israel. Yet, when God gave a covenant of promise to Abraham, God spoke directly to Abraham. So you're dealing with a law that came third party, a promise that came firsthand. He's making that reference. But what purpose does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions. I'm going to read that verse to you in a couple of different translations so you get the flavor of it. What what does it mean, added because of transgressions? Listen to it in the New Century version. So what was the law for? It was given to show that the wrong things people do are against God's will. The Living Bible says, So what was the law for? To show men how guilty they are of breaking God's laws. J.B. Phillips translates it this way. What was the law for? To underline the existence and the extent of our sins. In other words, the law wasn't given to make people righteous, good, holy, it was to show you you're unholy, you're condemned, to lift the lid off of your respectability so you look at yourself and go, yuck. And to restrain you. It was added to restrain the natural impulses of man. Would you turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1 for just a moment? And let Paul the Apostle tell you this in his own words. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Now, mark this text next time somebody says, Well, I'm going to heaven because I keep all the rules. I really try hard to keep the law of God. I'm keeping the Ten Commandments. I'm keeping all the laws, which... Is a lie. They just broke one by saying that. But anyway, verse 8, 1 Timothy chapter 1. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Knowing this, the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless, the insubordinate, the ungodly, for sinners, for the unholy, the profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there be any other thing that's contrary to sound doctrine. So when you say, I live and I die by the law, well, you're indicting yourself. You're saying nasty things about you. Picture the law like this. The law is a flashlight. You're driving down the road. It's a pitch black night. Car stops. You take, open the hood, shine the flashlight, and it shows you you've got a broken fan belt. Now the flashlight can't fix the fan belt. It can reveal you got problems. The law is like the flashlight that shows us the problem that we have. In fact, the light of God's law aggravates the problem. I've heard people say, don't tell me anything that's going to make me feel bad. Doctor, please, don't tell me what I think you're going to tell me. Well, Paul said in Romans chapter 3, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Romans 7, verse 7, if it hadn't been for the law, I would not have known sin. You remember as a kid when you first in school were given a microscope and you put things underneath it and the, the, the... Teacher was trying to show you that life in a microscope looks different than life with the naked eye. So you take a sharp needle point and you look at it and it looks beautiful and symmetrical and shiny and perfect. And then you put it under a microscope, and it shows you the rough and irregular edges. And you look at it and you think, "Wow, I would not have known." that this needlepoint was so raspy-looking, so rough-looking, so irregular, unless it were for the microscope revealing it to me. That's what the law does. Our lives, under the light and the lens of the law, shows the rough and irregular parts of our lives. So it wasn't meant to give us salvation. It was meant to convict us that we need salvation. The law wasn't given to make us holy, as I said, but to show that we are unholy. Oh, about a hundred years ago when cameras were scarce. Boy, technology has changed. But it was a scarce thing to walk around with your own private camera. There was an evangelist in Scotland, in Glasgow, Scotland, who used to run around with a Bible in a leather case that resembled a camera case. And in those days, to see a camera was novel, and so people would stop the evangelist and say, hey, would you take our picture? And he would say, oh, I already have your picture. You what? Oh yes, I already have your picture. Well, you just met us. How could you have our picture? Oh, I have it right here. He'd open the camera case, lift out his Bible, turn to Romans chapter 3. You don't have to do it, unless you can find it immediately, which, anyway, this is what he'd read to them. He'd say, here's your picture. And he reads sections out of the law that Paul quotes. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They're altogether unprofitable. There's none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they've practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. See, so there's your picture. That's what the law says of you. And then he would, once they're flabbergasted, like, this guy just insulted us. Then he would share how the, the law is God's flashlight, but Christ can heal the wound can heal the problem, can fix the ailment that sin has caused. So what purpose then, verse 19, does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come. Till the seed should come, Christ, Dwight L. Moody put it this way, the law tells me how crooked I am, grace comes along and straightens me out. So the law takes you into the interrogating room and says, up against the wall, buddy boom, strips you naked before the judge. Then Jesus comes in and takes you into the throne room and puts his robes of righteousness on you and makes you a child of God. That's the difference. That's why John said at the very beginning of his gospel, for the law came by Moses, but grace and truth has come through Jesus Christ. So what the law could never do, the promise of faith can do. And I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what Paul's doing, very clever. He's saying, okay, Jewish believers, you who hold to the law of Moses, God's way is the way of Abraham, not the way of Moses. God's way is to make a person righteous by their believing in the promise of God. Then once they do that, he grabs a hold of their life and changes them from the inside out, not the outside in, like the law of Moses. That's the way of the gospel, the way of Abraham. Verse 20. Now, a mediator does not mediate for only one, but God is one. You know what that means? He's saying you can have a covenant, and you have one mediator for one covenant, but God is one. In other words, it's the same God who's the God of the covenant of Abraham and the same God who's the God of Moses. There's no difference. One doesn't cancel out the other. They're not in conflict with each other. They get along. Is the law, then, against the promises of God? Certainly not or God forbid, I think the old King James says, or the new skip translation, no way, Jose. <laughs> For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture is confined all under sin that the promise of faith in Jesus Christ might, not be, given, might be given to those who believe. Let me interpret that. If you could be saved by doing good things, by being a good person, by keeping a list of rules and regulations, then Jesus Christ would never have needed to go to a cross and die. Didn't Jesus pray in the garden, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. The fact that he went to the cross shows that there is no other way. Righteousness could never come by keeping a code, a set of rules or regulations, or, well, I'm baptized and I'm confirmed and I'm a member in this church. No, I believe in Christ in Christ alone. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law. What a picture that is. Kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor. How many of you have an Old King James Version? Just curious. It says schoolmaster, does it not? Schoolmaster. I don't have fond memories of my schoolmasters. A couple of them I do. Most of them I don't. One of them, two of them kicked me out of school. I thought they were cruel. Well, they thought I was cruel. After all, I came to school with an aluminum shaft that my father had from McDonnell Douglas Aircraft in Long Beach, California, where he was an engineer, and it was a nice, perfect shaft. And my mother was a nurse, so I took a hypodermic needle from her stash and put a little sponge on the end, and it was a perfect blowgun. And they couldn't understand, Skip, what's gotten into you? Why did you shoot that girl with that blow dart? and they kicked me out of school, sent me home for days. (laughs) Cruel schoolmaster, I thought. (laughs) Cruel student, they thought. The law was a schoolmaster, a tutor, paedagogos is the Greek term, a director. A paedagogos, or a tutor, was someone in charge of a child's education age 7 to 18. This tutor was in charge of the general development of the student, made sure the student dressed properly for the educational process and escorted the student from home to school. And then afterwards made sure that homework was done, they dressed well for the next day, they got up in time. The connotation in the minds of the Greeks of a paedagogos, a tutor, a schoolmaster, was not a favorable one. They heard the word and they went, oh, yeah, I have bad memories of that, man, when I was a kid. And that was exactly what Paul was trying to do. The law was a tutor, a temporary schoolmaster to take you from point A to point B. Point A is where you started in life. Point B is the cross of Jesus Christ. So just like the tutor has a temporary job, the law of Moses was never meant by God to be a perpetual covenant, but temporary. To show us how bad we are, to tether the old nature, to cause us to be convicted of our sin, and to seek salvation in Jesus Christ. A temporary guardian. Verse 25, and let's close up the chapter. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. He's saying God makes no distinction of race, rank or gender. The Jews did, right? Didn't they? What if you were a Jewish woman and you wanted to worship in the temple? You had a special court, the court of the women. What if you were a Gentile and you wanted to worship? You had the court of the Gentiles. You as a Gentile couldn't cross into the court of the Jewish women. You weren't even good enough to be in their court. There was a wall that went around the court of the women that said, if you cross this line, you will die. a wall of separation, but you come to Christ, there are no distinctions. And what does that mean to you? It means that tonight, if you're in Christ, if you're trusting Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, not your upbringing in Calvary or the Methodist Church or the Presbyterians or your heritage or anything but Christ. If you're Christ, if you belong to him, then you have as much access to God as anybody else. So when you pray, don't ever say, God, I don't want to bother you or anything, because I know probably Billy Graham's praying right now, and he's more important. (laughs) You know, sometimes the more important a person is, that person may feel like they are a little more important. And if they, and I'm not saying Billy does, because I know his heart, and he's a very humble man, but we might feel unworthy That's where we come by faith, trust, completely, not by any status, not by any reputation, completely by faith. So if you are Christ, you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. I conclude by giving you two things to chew on, figuratively. Number one, use the law as a mirror, or in our illustration tonight, a flashlight. A mirror might be another good illustration. You look in the mirror in the morning, and if you're honest, you should say, (laughs) "Ugh." You do that. I know you do that because you have combs and hairspray and all sorts of items around your bathroom that are very costly, and you put them all over yourself, and you look different when you leave that bathroom than when you entered. (laughs) You all do. We all do that to some degree or another. The mirror reveals the truth about us. The the, the mirror may reveal you have a dirty face, but that's all it can do is reveal. You can't take the mirror off the wall and put soap on it and scrub your face with the mirror. No, all it does, its only function is to reveal the problem. That's what the law does. Use it to reveal the problem. As you read the Bible, thou shalt, thou shalt not, thou shalt, thou shalt not. You will probably go, ooh. I've blown it in all those areas. Second, use the law as a guardian to bring you to Christ. That's his point. The law not only shows the problem, the flashlight not only shows the brokenness of your condition, it points you to the guy who can fix it. So don't just stand there and go, ooh, yuck, ooh, bad. Go, I'm going to Christ where I am atoned and cleansed by his blood, at the cross. That's Paul's point. Use the law lawfully. Let it show you how bad you are and where you must go. From there to Christ alone. Police officer Peter O'Hanlon, good Irish name, was patrolling his beat in the north of Ireland. And one night he was—I'll oh, forget that. He, one night he was <laughs> patrolling and he heard a child scream. And it was a little boy who was lost. Take me home. And where do you live, laddie? I don't know, he said. And so the officer named street after street, store after store. None of it rung a bell. Finally, the officer looked, and in the distance, he could see lit up the cross in the center of town, which is where the church was. And so he took the little boy in his lap and he says, Laddie, can you see the cross on the church? Do you live anywhere near that? And the boy says, yes, yes, that's it. I see that every day. Take me to the cross. I can find my way home from there. That's Paul's message here. Come to the cross. That's the way home for you, for me.